You're listening to Work Tape, episode 92. Podcast. It's your boy Money Mitchell, Isaac Grubin Grover. So, if you've been following along, the last episode we had discussed a pretty intricate deep dive into Brian Eno and some of the albums that he's been responsible for. And one of the most prolific recent albums that uh, Brian Eno really had a big hand in carrying was Coldplay's albums, most notably. Viva La Vida, Prospects March, which is the extension of Viva La Vida, and Milo Zylado. And as I had stated before in the last episode, I didn't even know that Brian Eno produced Milo Zylado. But once I found that out, it makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Specifically, once again, with the electronic influence. I mean, the heavy electronic influence, especially on Milo Zylado, it makes perfect sense. You think he was responsible for that four on the floor thing that Coldplay transitioned to from X and Y? Because X and Y and before, that was not there. Yeah. Well, a little bit too, because I mean, although it's a couple albums down, I mean, Adventure of a Lifetime kind of sounds like a Talking Heads track. Yes, it does. So... There was definitely maybe some of that carryover and influence from Brian Eno. Even if Brian Eno didn't produce some of those other albums, I think that it maybe was something that lasted with the band after they worked together. I would agree with you, though, for sure, with the four on the floor. I mean... Because every teardrop and Viva La Vida both have that kind of... Charlie Brown, too, kind of has a little bit of a four on the floor. It does. You're right. Charlie Brown is actually, I think, a kind of underrated Coldplay track, actually. I know it's a live staple. I know that they play it at all their live shows. But I feel like amongst fans and the general public, it's a bit underrated. It does get me a bit teary-eyed because, like, it's... it's <laughs> I'm being so vulnerable on this podcast. It's so funny because Milo Zylodo is not my favorite Coldplay album. It's not my favorite album of all time, but it's... Maybe you could say it's Coldplay, so of course this is going to happen. But there's something about that album is so, like, if you grew up with it, you know, you and I both listened to it when it first came out, I'm assuming. Yes. And it just, Charlie Brown is one of the most emotional ones for me, for sure. It's not even every teardrop. Oh, for sure. Charlie Brown, for me as well, is definitely an emotional track. Mostly because I think when that album came out, and specifically when I heard that song there was kind of some ups and downs going on in my life at that particular time and i think that charlie brown especially with the majority of the song being the way it is provided an escapism a little bit Mm -hmm. and then of course the ending always gets me too where they go from you know a very lively almost party-like atmosphere to a very somber piano. That was similar to uh, uh, the opener to um, to Viva La Vida. What was that opening? La, 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 la. Um, it's life. Uh, oh, in Technicolor. Uh, it's 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 sorry. It's not life in Technicolor. It's the second one. 
um, street that's of London. Cemeteries of London. Yeah, Cemeteries of London does that whole like, yeah, piano yeah, yeah. at the very end. Right. Yeah, Cemeteries of London kind of has the. To me, it almost sounded like with Cemeteries of London, they took a lot from um, House of the Rising Sun. Oh, I was thinking of a, a Scarborough Fair by Garfunkel. Well, that too. There's, I mean, I think it's just like specifically that melody is kind of carried over. But yeah, right. Charlie Brown always gets me in the feels when it comes to stuff off of Milo. I really do enjoy every teardrop as well. Paradise. I love Paradise. Yeah, that one's great. Paradise is, I think, one of Coldplay's best songs, period. I just think that there's so much structurally going on in that song. There's different sections. In my opinion, I think that's one of the best blends of old Coldplay and what at that time was kind of new Coldplay. I would agree. Um, Because you did have that kind of colorful, vibrant, you know, electronic influence. But then you also had the verses with Chris and the piano and Will on the drums, killing it. Dude, the drums are mixed to perfection in that track. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Let's give some props to Will Champion because he almost got kicked out of the band in the very beginning, early stages. They almost let him go because his drumming just wasn't like up to snuff, apparently. But he stuck it out. And now he... Kind of has always been. Actually, no. I'm gonna I'm gonna stand up for him. I think Guy Berryman has kind of been their weakest link, and I love Guy because you know I play bass, and so I've always liked Guy's like especially Trouble. That bass line's one of my favorites. Yeah, and I love his bass lines. Like you know, God put a smile upon your face. Like those were good. I think Will is almost more characteristic for Coldplay than Guy. So I kind of find it weird that oh, definitely Will was kind of their first line of focus. Well, yeah. And like I said, it was when they were getting started. So this was like, so that was like Parachutes era when they weren't, you know, the band that they later became. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So, so yeah, it so was it definitely was, pre-Rush. It was in right. the formative thing. So like, that was the thing. Like they almost kicked him out because I guess he just wasn't blending well for a while, but then something eventually clicked and then they kind of kept going the rest is basically history. Right. Rush of Blood was Will Champion's moment. <laughs> oh, for sure. I mean, I would agree with you definitely with Coldplay and what's kind of indicative of their sound or trademark of their sound is the drums. Yeah. Just with some of the drum patterns that Will plays on so many of those records and even on um, Milo and actually a lot on Milo with every teardrop and uh, Paradise and Charlie Brown. I think X and Y, which we'll do that later, is so underrated. But uh, that's also Will at his best. I think Rush was like the beginning of Will really like, okay. I mean, he has some iconic riffs in that, but definitely X and Y was a good going out with a bang, even though that album really didn't get that much acclaim. I mean, it got enough acclaim because it was Coldplay, right? But it didn't get that much acclaim for a Coldplay record. It was still well-known because it was a Coldplay record, but for a Coldplay record, I feel like it was slept on so much. But um, right, it's such a gem. And hearing Will on that, even Guy, Guy had some really cool moments on that record too, because it's always like Chris and John. But yeah. um, I think Guy and Champion, I think they had a, a, a really cool rhythmic moment in X and Y. Definitely. I mean, so many people 
talk about X and Y as kind of YouTube biting, I guess. It, it was. It, it was. It totally was. So there was a, a lot of that, which in a way is an interesting segment because Brian Eno was so responsible for all the great U2 records and was <laughs> actively producing U2 at the time that they made X and Y. Because I think Brian Eno produced like How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb and whatnot, which is that kind of sound too. But yeah, so it's an interesting kind of full circle moment there. But let's talk about Viva, man. We have to talk about Viva. Vivon, Vivon. Yes. Viva La Vida is just an amazing album. I mean, it really, really is. I would say it's in strong contention for Coldplay's best just because it was not commercial necessarily. I mean, the song Viva La Vida was very commercial. I mean, the most downloaded song of the year, the most bought downloaded song on iTunes in 2008 was Viva La Vida, which is crazy to me because there's some other songs from that year that were also pretty big that it beat out. My friend told me uh, when that song came out, he told me, Dude, Isaac, you got to hear Viva La Vida, but Coldplay, it's better than Clocks. And to this day, I still look back because I remember it was 2008. We were stupid, right? And young. What's changed, right? But like, right. I still disagree with that sentiment. But I do recall how huge that song was. Oh, the when song it was, released. was massive. In part, there were iPod ads that featured Viva La Vida. Those iconic silhouette ads that Apple did for iTunes and for their music devices, they did one for Viva La Vida. It was Coldplay and U2 that were like always partner with Apple trying to like, that was crazy, right? Remember? Right. And I guess in a way, I mean, Coldplay and U2 were maybe a little ahead of the curve and like that whole like partnership with Apple thing, because Mm. then once Apple Music started and they started getting, you know, exclusive deals with artists to have their albums released there first they got paid you know significantly more for that too so maybe they were just ahead of the curve a little bit yep and coldplay did end up playing at steve jobs funeral too that is one of the most coldplay things i've ever heard go on yes (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah steve jobs died who's who who's the music oh coldplay Right, right, you know. We're not laughing about the death. I'm laughing about the situation. No, actually, the the Coldplay set was really cool because it was, um, it was like on their campus, right? And it was almost kind of like an acoustic set in a way. It was like very like stripped back and like, Hmm. it was really cool to watch, actually. I think there's, I think there's videos of it on YouTube. But besides the point, Viva La Vida, if you look just beyond the single Viva La Vida, which is a great, single it really is it has what you want in it it has great strings it has great production overall it's by far i think coldplay at their most cinematic for sure and that goes for like the entire album actually i think that viva la vida prospects march is coldplay at their most cinematic specifically because of the orchestration in there that's done with Viva. But I mean, we talked about Cemeteries of London and 42 Lovers in Japan. I love 42. And Lovers in Japan too. I love that song also. Lovers in Japan actually, in my opinion, kind of laid 
a bit of some groundwork for Milo, actually. Oh, my goodness. It also laid the groundwork for every indie band to come out of the 2010s in LA aughts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because you hear the piano on that. It's like very um, Matt and Kim kind of sounding or, yeah, like bands like Phoenix. But the quick strumming, like a uh, folk guitar with like the do, 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 do. You know what I mean? Like uh, oh, Lumineers yeah, yeah, yeah. and Edward Sharp and a Magnetic Zeros. and. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I mean, like I said, once again, this is just more reason and more validity as to why this yep. album is fantastic. Of Monsters and Men birthed in one day. <laughs> yes, that's why this album is fantastic. Because, I mean, you go track for track and you just find that there's really no misses, to be honest. It's like a very tight album. It's only 10 tracks long. I'll give you that. And there's not really a lot of misses on here. Lost is a great song, too. Lost is amazing. Lost is one of the greatest Coldplay songs I've ever heard in my life. Lost is, <laughs> Lost is just, yeah, Lost is fantastic. And Brian Eno was big on that song. And I mean, Brian Eno was huge on this entire album. But I feel like I really hear Brian Eno a lot on Lost, like especially with that drum pattern you know, kind of very reminiscent of maybe a little Talking Heads, maybe a little Peter Gabriel, too, hmm. at points. Actually, in my opinion, Lost does kind of sound like a Peter Gabriel song more than anything. I can hear it. I can hear it. Which I have no problem with because prime Peter Gabriel is fantastic. And then, of course, um, Violet, Violet Hill. Hill. Yep, I was thinking the same thing. Violet is so good. I used to, yes. as a kid, I was like playing that over and over. And then you listen to the lyrics and you're like, oh, this goes deeper. <laughs> yeah, no, it got really deep. That was a good record. Oh, what was it? The other one was um, Strawberry Swing was pretty good, too. Yeah, Strawberry Swing is great. A lot of people say that Strawberry Swing kind of has the elements of, you talked about like Afrobeat a little bit. Mm -hmm. I hear it. And then um, blues, too. That's kind of where Johnny goes really bluesy on the guitar. At least kind of what I hear. I no, hear it no I, I hear it too. I never thought about it like so head on, but I hear it. Yeah, because there's that kind of, it's a very blues lick, but I do hear the Afro beat too, especially with the rhythm section of it. Not really so much in the bass line. I think Guy kind of kept it pretty straight as far as bass is concerned. And once again, kind of making the thing of, you know, Guy Berryman is, you know, a bass player who brings the right amount to a track usually, but maybe is not as much of a trademark for the Coldplay sound. At least I, as I said what I said only in contrast to how they felt about Will um, kind of in the pre-stages of the band, at least like right. pre-worldwide um, acclaim. Right, because they were struggling and broke and they needed to get a good drummer and they thought that Will Champion wasn't going to cut it, but then he ended up... <laughs> Yeah, Coldplay is a lot like the Pixies and uh, the Smiths, where even though Andy Rourke for the Smiths is iconic as a bassist, you need him. But I've always kind of felt, and I never remember the drummer's name, I've always kind of felt like if there was one guy who was going to go, it would have to yeah. be the drummer. And sure. I feel like for Pixies, it's kind of the same thing. And yeah, these are some of my favorite bands. So people who want to get mad at me, like, forget it. You know what I mean? Like, right. I love these bands, but I can hear where someone is kind of replaceable. Right. And then, of course, the ones that are irreplaceable are like with the Smiths. It's you obviously can't have the Smiths if you don't have Johnny Marr. If you don't have Johnny Marr, you do not have the Smiths. You just have Morrissey wailing into a mic. Pretty much. I mean, yeah. 
I mean, Scott, so much of what made the Smiths great was Johnny Mark. Yes, exactly. But Andy Rourke was definitely an amazing supporting basis for the band. I I, I don't want to get too much into it, but for Pixies 2, you know, Kim Deal, and I forgot their drummer's name. She's great, I think, melodically, and I don't dislike her. Yeah. But as far as like bass playing, she didn't really bring anything that interesting to the table. Right. So I always kind of felt like, I think they have Paz. I think Paz is her name. Right. She's a new bassist and people, you know, the whole, oh, no Kim, no deal, which is very clever. Right. I still kind of felt like, well, they don't really need her as a bassist. Uh, maybe vocally, yes, that was a huge part of the Pixie sound was Kim's vocals. But the drums and the bass aren't really the forefront. I mean, they are forefront in the mix, but they are not forefront compositionally. It's funny because people are going to say, no, that's not true, because their minimal drum and bass playing is part of the Pixie sound. Right. But I'm just saying you could kind of hire anyone to do that. Sure. Yeah, I, I get your point, which is that with some bands, especially as they make more music, you kind of figure out like what members kind of really contribute heavily to the sound. I mean, I think with Coldplay, it's really hard to have Coldplay without Johnny and Chris, mostly. Yeah, I mean, that's like jerk mode. You know, if you're going to be a jerk and you're going to pick the guys who are the most important, then it would be Chris and Johnny. Hands yeah, down. It, yeah, absolutely. Because I'm not hating on that either. I'm not no, hating. No, no. I love Will and Guy. I don't. Yeah, I, I do too. <laughs> I, I do too. I think um, Guy Berryman has a lot of cool influences and licks. I mean, I remember watching an in-depth look into some of his stuff where he was talking about how he grew up on Motown and listening to James Jamerson and, you know, Bob Babbitt and all those great Motown bassists. So I instantly connect with him just for the love of soul music and specifically bass lines within soul music, which some of them were, yes, very complex, but a lot of soul music actually was kind of straight. But that's just what the track needed was kind of just, you know, a little bit of a foundational groove. You didn't have to go crazy on every track. You didn't have to be Larry Graham. Right. And you kind of don't want that, you know? Right. So every song has its purpose or track. So I kind of agree that, you know, you don't need to go all out. But yes, I definitely hear. Again, just there are not always, by the way, but oftentimes there will be those one or two people in a band and an ensemble of some kind where there's a bit of a, a somewhat of a replaceable personality, so to speak. Mm-hmm. As far as playing the lines compositionally, everyone's pretty unique for the most part. Yeah. I think the thing that's really cool about Coldplay actually is that kind of like Queen, they really do function as an entire unit. Yes, they it's do. It's not something where... I mean, even with the Smiths, we talked about, you know, Johnny Marr and Morrissey. And you really hear that it's kind of like Johnny Marr and Morrissey. And then I don't want to say that the other members are kind of just supporting them, but kind of. Kind of. In terms of the creative process, because most of the actual songwriting was like between Marr and Morrissey. But with Coldplay, like Queen did, they functioned as an entire unit. Like every member would write songs. And you can hear kind of how collaborative they are as a band 
in regards to different sounds and influences and but still being Coldplay and still kind of being one unit because I mean like with Queen when Queen was together and did the full and was a full unit I mean they were just great and then that's why you know when Freddie did the solo thing he didn't really have any hits yeah that was a testament to the band and how he needed everyone Right. Because so much of it was, you know, I mean, Freddie, Roger, Brian and John and all of them were great, especially. I mean, Roger Taylor is actually really underrated, too. Very underrated as a drummer and a vocalist. And then I love Brian Mays. I mean, we we could get into Queen, too. That's a whole nother episode. Surprisingly for Queen, I've always been pretty vocal about how they weren't a band that were my favorite. But like. I kind of like every member for the most part. Like, because how can you not? I mean, yeah, Freddy exactly. Is, Fred, exactly. I mean, Freddie is Freddie, of course. He's definitely the the highlight. And then Brian May is a very tasteful guitar player. He doesn't do anything crazy. He just does very tasteful guitar work. Brian has a humility that's very attractive. Well, I mean, he made his own guitar out of like firewood too, which is pretty dope. Yeah, and then John Deacon. And, and John Deacon, yeah. John Deacon is a great bassist as well. I mean, just listen to another one bites the dust. Or a bicycle? Yeah, a bicycle <laughs> race, yeah. I mean, just any of the Queen records. I mean, John Deacon just held it down as a bass player. And then we mentioned Roger Taylor as a vocalist and a drummer. Actually, that super high note that's on Bohemian Rhapsody, the for me, that really super high one, is not Freddie. It's actually Roger. That I did not know. So that just goes to show you that, like, how good he is, like, just unbelievably good. But once again, Queen can be for another episode. Wrapping this up, Brian Eno, an amazing producer, incredible engineer, so much that has been contributed to what I think is like modern music. I think you can't really have a lot of modern rock and a lot of modern electronic music without mentioning Brian Eno. It's impossible. I mean, just with you two and Talking Heads alone, if you would have stopped there, that would have been enough. But to bring so much to the table for Coldplay, too, especially at a time where after X and Y, I mean, a lot of people liked X and Y, but let's be honest, they were kind of in need of a different sound after X and Y. Yeah, they were. Because so many people were like, oh, it's a U2 rip. So. <laughs> A very, very good YouTube rip. <laughs> you know, a, a very well, no, an extremely well done YouTube rip. But what I'm saying is, is if Brian didn't come in, if they didn't give so much faith to Brian, and actually, I mean, in a way, they actually kind of kicked Chris out of the band for like a little while. Like when they were making Viva for at least the first couple weeks, I think to a couple months, Chris was like very minimally involved. That was to the band's benefit, to be honest. I think so, too, because, I mean, while Chris Martin doesn't strike me as someone who is egocentric, uh, he's no Morrissey in that respect. Oh, no, no, no. He's not a front man that has an overly inflated ego. or He's not has... even as bad as Bono. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, no, definitely not. He doesn't strike me as someone who's conceited or self-centered, but I do think that by him being absent from the studio, at least for a little while, and kind of giving Guy and Will and John 
some breathing room to kind of experiment with some other types of sounds and to contribute other types of songwriting to the band. I think it was great. And then, of course, they did, you know, eventually bring Chris back in and, you know, he contributed what he contributed. I think sometimes it turns too much into the Chris Martin show. And I'm not saying that's to his fault, but it it happens. You know what I mean? Well, I think a part of that was him. Well, him being married to Gwyneth Paltrow at the time, too. Mm, I forgot about that. Yeah, it gave him like a lot of spotlight and it put him in like the public eye a lot. In regards to you mean you mean more than most than if he was just yeah more than most rock singers because he is a frontman so I would think that usually people hail the frontman as like or front right. women right but I mean in terms of news and stuff because he was associated with Gwyneth Paltrow and they were writing a ton of articles on her at the time they right. also wrote a ton on him yeah so it's not like um. Oh, like, because I mean, compare Chris Martin to like Ryan Tedder. You don't hear like stuff written that much about Ryan Tedder unless it's like specifically music related. Like they'll write about Ryan Tedder in relation to One Republic, but they won't write about him in really any other way. That's very true. That's very true. I don't ever hear about him. In other ways. And so they went beyond music. But I think also too, like Chris Martin did have a big, big influence and not a big chokehold per se, but kind of a big grasp on a lot of the songwriting, especially in the early parts. I mean, like The Scientist, I think, was entirely written by Chris and then the band just kind of came in. Yeah, it it, it shows. (laughs) Yeah, you you can tell when it's a Chris-focused effort because he just has a certain style. Do you think Death and All His Friends? I mean, that's what it sounds like to me which yeah. is one of my favorite tracks. I think that one's as good as Lost. Yeah. And here's the deal. I don't mind when it's just kind of Chris either because that was the criticism of Ghost Stories was that it was like the Chris Martin... <laughs> Chris Martin solo that record. A, yeah. That it was a Chris Martin solo album. Yeah, but it was a good one. <laughs> yeah, it was really good. I like that a lot. It sounded like almost parachutes, but like Evolve. Dude, same here. I thought I was the only one that heard that. It was so, oh my gosh, it was there. Yeah, because right. I mean, like you listen to Oceans and stuff, like for example. Yep. And it's like, yeah, that, that would have totally been on Parachute. But anyway, to wrap things up, Brian, you know, one of the founding fathers, founding contributors of great electronic and rock music. Um, like I said, no conversation in that space is complete without Brian, you know. He's a huge influence to me. To this very day, if I can make something like even half as good as some of the stuff that he's contributed to, I will be very happy. And if for those who are maybe not as aware or have not really listened to some of that stuff as much, do yourselves a favor and just go ahead and get yourself deep diving into Brian Eno's discography. And I mean, pretty much everything that he's been associated with because. The man really never missed, in my opinion. So anything that's produced by him, anything that's done by him, um, if you're into the ambient thing, if you want some music to chill out to, the ambient stuff is definitely great. If you want some great rock music and electronic music, as we said, the Talking Head stuff, U2, Coldplay, and countless others that we just didn't really have time for, 
But anyway, this has been the Work Tape Podcast. Money Mitchell, Isaac Rubin Grover. Stay hydrated. We'll be at you with some music news. Take it easy.